Hello and welcome to the Shakti Hour, a podcast on Ram Dass's Be Here Now Network, where I speak with women about their personal experience on the spiritual path. My name is Melanie, and today I'm sharing a conversation with Sangha member Ganga Devi Braun. Ganga and I met last year at a retreat at Hanuman Gardens, and we stayed in touch and had a really nice conversation uh, late this spring where we talked about social media and Instagram, nonlinear time, and got to hear some of her personal experience and story of growing up on an ashram. I hope you'll enjoy hearing more from Ganga and uh, find links to contact her on the Shakti Hour page. Thanks so much for listening to the Shakti Hour. Please do remember to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and do leave us a positive review. Also, if you'd like to become a subscriber, you can follow the Shakti Hour at patreon.com slash Shakti Hour and join in with a subscription to receive special monthly rewards and help support some upcoming special series on sacred music and sacred earth that I am producing with a professional podcast producer over the coming months. Uh, You can also find me on Instagram, Shakti Hour Podcast, and on Facebook, Shakti Hour and as always at BeHereNowNetwork.com. Thanks so much for listening. Now enjoy Ganga Devi Braun. So here we are. Yeah. I saw your post this morning. (laughs) Yeah, Instagram. Who knew it would be such an outlet of expression? Yeah. Mm -hmm. It feels like it's cathartic in some way, no? just to be able to put it somewhere and know that somebody's going to grab it? Oh, totally. Um, yeah, it's been really helpful for me. Um, and specifically like doing this hundred day project of, uh, of self-expression, uh, and selecting the, the topic of earth medicine and recognizing that everything comes from the earth. So anything that's arising for me can be medicine and, uh, is from the earth and it all counts. Um, and then having like the structure of the hundred day project to hold me accountable for deep diving. Um, that's been like a really cathartic experience because, um, this whole, my whole life, I, I, I'm able to stay in my head and stay in my rational self and um i'm happiest when i'm in a state of self-expression but sometimes i'm just stuck in um analysis Mm -hmm. and yeah so this this practice uh on instagram has been really really healing and helpful and cathartic for sure and where did the hundred days come from where did that plan come from you know, I don't know. There was a, I have a couple of friends um, in the Bay Area who I think that there's an artist out there who kind of started the 100 Day Project um, for her own for her own art and practice. Uh, mm-hmm. But I don't actually know her or, or who she is. Um, but I saw a lot of my friends starting to do this and last year and um, and I also wanted to start, but I, I didn't have the ability for follow through. And this year I saw some people starting it up again and, um, it was just, it's amazing to see how people's art and how people's expression can evolve and change with a hundred days of showing up fully. Um, and I knew that with 
all the challenges that I'm going through in my personal life and my family life right now, um, that it was my responsibility to myself to self-reflect every day and to nourish myself and that having other people's eyeballs on me was um, both a practice of, of vulnerability, which is also really healing and also, um, again, like an accountability measure. Uh, so yeah, I just um, started it on a whim a couple of months ago and uh, yeah, it's been really amazing. You know, what's so cool about about that is that um you know what i like about the vulnerability of that on the daily thing is that um that's what art is right and and you then you're then you're kind of get to see that okay maybe there's five of those hundred that really feel like oh yeah that's really like yeah i got the got the, I got the thing mm -hmm. together there. And um, for any kind of practice, I think, especially on uh, social media in that flow that we're in right now, today, this moment, mm -hmm. it's, um, it's too all too easy to edit and capture only the five. But the truth of the matter is, is that, 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 and with any practice, with a meditation practice or artistic practice, is that the other 95 are essential yeah. to the five that really hold the potency of what you're really looking for. Mm -hmm. Now, maybe you have, maybe you're like a less harsh critic on yourself than I am, and maybe your percentage is higher out of 100 than 5%, but... Um, but I, at least in my experience, it feels like, you know, working like that when you're working, when you're writing, when you're creating, that it really comes down to, you know, showing up for it every day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, um, that sentiment always brings to mind um, Maria Popova, who is like such an amazing, prolific creator. She has brain pickings uh, for anyone who's unfamiliar. Uh, she has a remarkable mind and is constantly putting out phenomenal analysis and, um, and expression and relationship with a lot of like dead old thinkers. And on a podcast, I heard her uh, quoting Thoreau about productivity, um, where Thoreau in one of his in one of his journals said, like a chicken isn't always laying eggs. A chicken is often just eating seeds and, you know, floating around in dirt and doing all kinds of random stuff that a chicken does uh, and is not always laying an egg. Uh, but then all of the other things contribute to the effortlessness of egg laying. And um, hmm. that's what it feels like for me uh, with all forms of my outward expression, I, I know that I'm honing my voice and I know that I'm honing my, the sense of who I want to be in the world for myself and for others. And it's been remarkable because even the things that I post, I, I do this as a morning practice and, um, it's like one of the first things I do when I'm laying in bed on my phone, I, I record a little, uh, gratitude voice recording that I send to a friend of mine. Um, and then I get it on Instagram and I, find whatever image I want to post and I wrote, write something. And 
I don't think about it. I hardly edit it. Um, and it's still kind of in that numinous space of my sleeping time. And sometimes I'll go back and I'll be like, oh, that was a grammatical thing or whatever. But mostly I just don't touch them because what I want, what I want more than anything is to give permission to people to really take an honest deep dive into their own human experience and whatever it is that's challenging in that moment for them. Um, and I also really want the people who care about me to understand what my inner world, um, Mm. so that they can understand better how I'm showing up for them. Uh, specifically in this really challenging time of my father dying, like a lot of people are reaching out to me all the time. Um, with a lot of love, but a lot of the time it's asking questions. Um, like, how are you? What's going on? Like what's going on with your dad? What's, how's your mom? What's, uh, you know, my stepmother Durga doing, how's my sister? All these questions. I, I so frequently cannot respond to them. Um, like I, I just, I have so many messages in Facebook and in my texts and in emails that I have been unable to individually respond to because it takes so much out of me to give, a genuine, honest response. Uh, and I don't want it to be bottled. Uh, I don't want it to be formulaic. I want to be honest. And, um, and I also have other things that I need to be doing with my day rather other than corresponding with people. And I trust that if those people understand me and they know me and they love me, that they won't be offended. Mm. Um, so it's also kind of this lifeline of me casting out this super honest vulnerability to everyone who I know and who loves me um, and trusting that they will understand me better from that place and that will help them engage with me better and help any future communication that we have just immediately drop into um, a beautiful, Hmm. more authentic, deeper space. Because uh, if anything of this like last year and a half has taught me is that I don't have the time or the energy for superficial um, <laughs> shit anymore. <laughs> like, uh, life is so precious and I'm not, I'm not willing to have a ton of small talk anymore. Although like, I love, I love pop culture and I love, you know, I can talk about Star Trek forever and, uh, and like, <laughs> and I love the sweet details of people's lives. And I love talking about, um, you know, just things that were exciting that happened in someone's day. Um, but but I don't need to, but I want it to be from a place of like genuine open heartedness. Mm. And uh, since I started this project, I've noticed that people who do follow me on Instagram, when I, when I talk to them, we immediately drop into this beautiful space of, mm. of them acknowledging what I've been doing. And then often they'll come to me and be like, I'm going through this thing. And this has been so helpful to you, for me to see your reflection. And we're able to immediately talk about whatever it is that's painful that they're going through. And um, not sugarcoat it and not pretend that it's either, you know, I think sometimes when we're going through really difficult things, we can pretend, um, that it's okay and we can bypass it. Uh, but sometimes we also feel like we need to be miserable all the time. Like with, like having a parent who's dying, people see me joyful sometimes. And I can tell that they're, I I can sometimes perceive that people are judging me for being like really joyful in whatever moment I'm in. And then they, they bring up my dad and, and it totally pulls me out of a flow state. And it's, (laughs) 
Wait, <laughs> yes, yeah, so you're supposed to be feeling this way now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, you're supposed to be grieving right now. And I'm like, well, my father is like completely like immersed in like Maharaji's love right now. So like no one in this entire situation wants me to be suffering. doesn't mean I'm not suffering. Right. There's a a good Ramdas story about that. He tells that story about, well, do you need to be dying all the time? Or could you be maybe dying for a few minutes a day and then also living? (laughs) Could you? But honestly, I'm just getting emotional about your relationship with, um, social media. <laughs> I mean, it's bringing it's warming my heart so much because there is this generational gap where um, I felt uh, first really resistant, you know, I'm a Gen Xer. I'm like, you know, not into the system, right? That's my programming. My teenage programming is like, fuck the system, you know, like, and, um, and so there was, was a huge resistance. And then I, then I stepped into a feeling of, oh, I get it. This is, this could be this thing that like you're talking about, this could, this could be a conversation starter. This could be a place for self-expression. This could be all these things. But then, um, the holding of the space for that dialogue to continue outside of this thing, you know, outside of the device that's where the um, uh, potency sometimes gets a bit lost. So I'm curious about, you know, I think that the, the 100 Days project is nice because you're giving it a nice structure to, to mm-hmm. lean on. So you have that structure regardless of what conversations come end up coming out of it ultimately for you. Mm-hmm. But I'm wondering about that experience of, you know, because I feel blessed as are you to have a great you know community of people who are present and 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 whose intention is to be present and and available to one another in love but what about that the the feeling of there not being a an audience or not being a response you know what Mm. i'm saying that thing that maybe you haven't experienced it that way maybe you just have have lived in a nice (laughs) community that has supported you through that medium but but um, yeah, do you know what I'm getting at? Yeah, I do. And um, it's funny, I, <laughs> this is a strange response, but um, I think that my very enduring faith in nonlinear time mm. helps that a lot. Mm. Um, I've spent many years uh, really cultivating, uh, I guess, somewhat divergent relationship with time as as a nonlinear system that we experience in a linear way, but, um, but trusting that it's not linear and trusting that if I put something out there that is authentic and meaningful to me, um, that if it's supposed to be of service to someone, it will be. And it doesn't have to be immediately. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I just, and this is important for me to hear myself say, because it's it's the truth for me, but I get caught up in um, really being uncomfortable with being scrutinized. And so for me, it's not so much, it's like if nobody responds to something that I put out there, I'm so fine with that. I have no problem with it. But I am concerned about people um, 
disliking uh, or like being being critical of what I'm doing, not in a way that is um, like anyone can be critical and it's and it's fine. And a lot of the time it's people's projections. But if somebody were to um, point out to me that something that I did was deeply problematic, that brings up a lot of shadow for me to work with that I'm terrified of working on. But it's so important that I work on it Um, and I and I get to a place of embracing it. But it's that's like my biggest enemy is being um, is putting something out there and not feeling like I'm enough of an authority or I haven't done enough of my own self work to be valid in expressing what I'm expressing because we, we do live in such a critical and uh, often non-constructive kind of Mm. internet sphere. Mm. Right. Right. Well, and then that's a lot of responsibility, you know, I'm going to, now I'm going to face my shadow and work on it because some (laughs) person said had a, had a negative response or non-response, you know, or there's no response to, you know, I posted that thing and nobody liked it, you know, (laughs) nobody responded. But in that way, you know, coming from a, of a spiritual seeker or somebody who's on a spiritual path, I like the way that you're framing it, that you're using it to engage your own practice. Like you're Mm -hmm. engaging your own personal development, your own relationship with spirit. And I love also the idea that this is not instant time, that Mm -hmm. the time can come and and can come back and that the, the message can be received and retrieved and reworked and, and held in the right moment. Yeah. And if like, if the internet truly is forever, as people (laughs) threaten us with saying all the time, um, if it truly is forever, then like, that's such a relief um, for those of us who are putting, you know, art or self-expression out there, um, not for attention and gain, but for hoping that it can be really meaningful and nourishing to people. Because in the past, our ancestors did not have... um, a similar assurance of, of longevity. Um, but I think about like future, um, digital archeologists finding my Tumblr page from when I was like 17. (laughs) And I really check in with myself and I'm like, do you, do I feel ashamed of my self-expression from that time? Or can I really own it as a part of my evolution? Hmm. And I've been myself that question since I was here. And and yeah, I feel like maybe some parts of me would be embarrassed, um, but but my truest self uh, loves myself. And I'm grateful that like so many old weird pictures are on Facebook of me. And I'm grateful that um, <laughs> that there's like evidence of of my growth and my evolution, because I always want to be a different person than I have been. And I'm grateful mm. for the people that I have been that have led me to who I am today. Um, and I'm really excited to meet myself in the future. <laughs> and the internet allows us to uh, to self-reflect in a really unique way. And I'm I'm grateful for that. Yeah, see, that's so beautiful. There's this, uh, there was a Portlandia episode not, not long ago where um, Fred Armisen is, is trying to figure out how old he is. And he's got all of these different <laughs> kinds of, of um, mini discs and thumb drives and different, all these things he's trying to figure out, like, all this time has passed that isn't um isn't held on the internet so see there's this i have half of a life mm-hmm. without that that in the those stories are held in the people in in my relationships and maybe somebody has some pictures somewhere you know 
I was talking to to Raghu about that uh, the other the other day. Just you know, just considering had Maharaji been now like the documentation, you know, there's there's so many pictures of him as it stands, mm-hmm. but you know, just just considering how what that would have been like, you know, for people to be in that reflection. But the way that you're you know you're looking at it is so. Um, again, is so based in this spir- personal spiritual evolution and seeing the, the um, changes in yourself and seeing that reflection. But there is still that accountability aspect, you know, <laughs> which is something that, um, honestly, in my 20s, I'm grateful that I don't have to be accountable <laughs> for that time. You know yeah. what I'm saying? <laughs> like that was not a time um, beyond the things that I officially captured that I necessarily would want full documentation of. And sometimes I wonder about that wildness, you know, with this idea of, you know, you're working with earth medicine and I wonder about that privacy, that wildness that happens in youth, or at least it was allowed to happen for me. Mm-hmm. And what that, you know, I said, you still have the choice whether or not to, to document it, but what do you think? Well, and th- like we're always editing our our presence on the internet, and there's so much that is in my life that uh, never reaches any any media outlets. Right. Uh, and I'm grateful for that um, because just as we choose, you know, what we're going to wear when we go out of the house every day uh, and we don't have to be naked all the time unless, you know, we choose to and we're in a context where that's appropriate. Right. Um, we we get to choose what parts of our bodies we expose. And, um, and I think that it's important not to be uh, like phony or false, but to acknowledge that no one, no one is capable of living their entire lives on the internet. Like I, that just sounds impossibly exhausting. I feel like there's maybe an experimental like Norwegian documentary where somebody did that for a long time. But, um, but for the most part, we're, we're very much curating, um, our presentation all the time. Um, so that's, that's an important, uh, thing to always just acknowledge, especially when you're looking at other people's feeds and you're like, Mm. Oh my gosh, they're so creative and so beautiful. And like everything that happens in their life is so, um, is like wrapped up in a nice package of aesthetic or expression and like no one's lives are, are like that. Um, and, but I also like, there is a degree of, you know, the wildness and the, um, I mean, definitely, like, I express a lot of vulnerability on on my page. And I have some friends who uh, do Facebook lives where they talk about, like, yesterday's sexual awakening and um Mm -hmm. and like you know what their uh what their like tantric practices are are doing for them and like Mm -hmm. are very very personal and very vulnerable and uh that's something that i um i don't think it would serve me to to like i don't feel a need to share Mm -hmm. that but i recognize that for some people um sharing those wild parts Mm -hmm. of their lives is also really healing and cathartic for other people right or, but also that through story, I mean, it's, it is also through story and, and part of what you're offering are these little love letters, mm-hmm. you know, and it makes me, it was reminding me of, um, I took this class in college on uh, Japanese women's high end period literature. Mm-hmm. And this is this you know, this ancient time period where these women would write these 
they had no um, expression in the world except their presentation, except mm-hmm. the way that they were presented. And then, so they would, and, the, and they were, you know, held in, in the home, you know, they had yeah. this, so, but they would write these incredibly, you know, detailed descriptions of, they were writing out Instagram accounts, basically. <laughs> yeah. writing, and, you know, it was these incredibly detailed descriptions of, of what people were wearing and how, what they said and what the room was like and became this really beautiful, um, thick poetic document of detail. And, um, and then, and then in that expression of feeling, but kind of buried in there. So it's not like it's new, right? Yeah. No, not at all. (laughs) It's not new that we want to, that we want to notice that we want to observe each other, that we want to share how we see things down to details that we want to want to look closely at one another and in our experience that isn't like a new desire. And so having some sense of, um, spiritual awakeness to it can allow it to not be harmful. Really? You know, I'm, you know, some of these, these women were brutal to other women. You know, it's not, it's not, it's in the hands of the, the person using the tool, right? Yeah, how, of course. How, yeah, we, how we can do that. Neutral. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me, um, tell me a little bit about your background. Share with us a little bit about mm-hmm. your, your upbringing, your story and, and how you got to be where you are now. Yeah. So I, um, I'm actually across the street from the community that I was raised in, um, which is uh, Kashi Ashram, which is a Neem Karoli Baba ashram uh, that has an interesting history uh, in the in the whole Neem Karoli Baba lineage satsang, which might be for another time. Um, but it's an amazing interfaith community here in Florida. It's on 80 acres of land, um, and there's like just temples to so many different traditions all around uh, the grounds. And both of my parents were in were founders of the community here. Ah, Um, My father was one of the people who was with Neem Karoli Baba um, in person. And he was like, one of the temple makers and tree planters um, when they first came down here. And it was just like sandy uh, scrublands and like swampy kind of jungle. And now it's just this beautiful space. And I'm emphasizing that as part of my origin because being here I'm here because my father came back here to die and um you know it's called Kashi which is the ancient name of Varanasi which is the city in India on the banks of the Ganga where um where people go to die and from the some of my earliest memories here uh have been of caring for people dying of AIDS um, we had a hospice house, uh, just actually, I can like see it from my driveway here. The the house that used to be our, our hospice house, mm. the river house, we would call it in reference to the Ganga. And, um, it was for people whose families had completely abandoned them because of their contraction of HIV and, uh, were dying of AIDS. Um, so that's, that's where I am. Uh, now I'm, I'm physically also, uh, just across the street from Kashi and my mother's Tibetan Buddhist Dharma Center. So <laughs> my father was a devotee of Neem Karoli Baba and my mother was as well, but she didn't know him in the flesh. Um, she came to the teaching through um, Ramdas and Krishna Das in the 70s. And uh, and then in the last couple of few decades, she's really, really um, deeply immersed herself in Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, so we have a Dharma Center on one side of our duplex and the other side is where we live. And, um, it's an amazing, 
uh, intersection of these lineages. And mm. I know Raghu's been talking a lot about Dilgo Hinser Rinpoche on his podcast, um, and he's been really touched by uh, by who he was. Um, and that's the that's also the root guru of the Nyingma lineage that my mother is a part of. Okay. Um, so it's it's a really my parents really created a very rich foundation for me and my sister to come into. Um, and they're also both mental health professionals. They're both, um, therapists. So, uh, I was like really born into an incarnation that supported, uh, my emotional (laughs) intelligence and my spiritual path. How cognizant are you or were you of being kind of reaping the benefits of that lineage? Like, (laughs) you know so being being the fruit of of that time of of 19 basically 65 to 74 right mm-hmm. being the fruit of the the labors of of the people that went ahead of you yeah uh as a child i guess i was pretty aware of it i i I was really fascinated with the 60s growing up. I was fascinated with the hippie stuff. Um, Mirabai Bush is my is my godmother. And I remember going to her house and there were like always just really cool books about the 60s that, um, that I would read. And uh, I was always like really grateful, um, definitely for the spiritual lineage that I was in. I've never really had a period of... Um, of rebellion. I I had a period in high school of like, mm, I think during high school, I really felt that I had to normalize myself for self-preservation. So that was the only time that I felt really disconnected from my spirituality. Uh, But then I was able to drop right back into it in college. Um, And so I've, I, I never had a full rejection, which a lot of people in, um, you know, who are second generation in, in these really amazing, but pretty far out, uh, kind of lineages, uh, reject it for a while and then have to figure out how to reintegrate it. I never really had that, but it's actually just been the last year and a half that I've fully come to really, really appreciate exactly what you said. Like, like seeds were planted in the sixties and a lot of people who were really active and involved in the 60s that I talked to, um, especially people who were very uh, politically and like socially involved, but not very spiritually involved, uh, feel that it's, I've heard a lot of people express that they feel that it was a waste, that all their efforts were a waste and that Mm. they haven't seen the world come about that they wanted to create and that was motivating them. But, But my experience is that like seeds were planted and when seeds are planted it takes a while sometimes for them to germinate Mm. but i see like the fruiting happening everywhere right now and um, especially what what really awakened me to that was becoming pretty good friends with um with uh the i think he's now like the co-chair of the buckminster fuller institute and really uh dropping into buckminster fuller's legacy and recognizing um how many amazing young people are living in presence of that and how much work has been done because of Buckminster Fuller's legacy that that would never have been done if we didn't have time to like allow it to unfold, you know, like we needed decades to be at the place that we are right now. Um, and I really appreciate that. And then this last year, just really being embraced by, um, by Ramdas and the whole, um, the foundation and Raghu and, 
everyone uh, within that branch of the name Karoli Baba Satsang has again really deepened my appreciation for the groundwork that was set uh, to allow me to be the person that I am now. And I, I d- I'm so grateful too that I don't have this resentment of like not having met him in the flesh um, because that would just be really painful <laughs> if I had that, you know, I'm, I'm happy to be here now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's just so, it's so, fa- <clears throat> excuse me. It's so fascinating that the perception of time and, and, uh, you know, back to, to the internet and social media and how things move so quickly now, it's like all so relative. But when I was speaking to Lama Siltram last year, um, you know, I asked her about that and, and she was very hopeful, you know, she was like, you know, there's a, a a yoga studio in every little town in America. I mean, there was nothing, there was Naropa, Mm -hmm. you know, (laughs) and a couple little strongholds and, you know, and, um, and so to that degree with spirituality, it is that foundation is out there and, and you can go do a semester at Naropa and, and meet these people and, and take that further and building that structure, you know, in, in the world to hold, um, to hold more space for those ideas to evolve. And uh, Buckminster Fuller, I'm obsessed with the um, Expo 67, the World's Fair that was in Montreal in 1967. And he built the biosphere there. I'm obsessed with that whole experience and with that, with the biosphere, which then burned down. And then Robert Altman made a movie in it. And now it's there and they turn it into a science center. And but um, but just that idea that. um, You know, that was like a, a futuristic idea 50 mm-hmm. years ago right it was 51 years ago <laughs> it was the future yeah and so and so um and so that kind of disillusionment with the follow-through needed or how things come together you know it's it's like it feels like this is kind of a theme that's coming out of what we're talking about around with your 100 days project and time not being linear and and being in this moment, I last night I had the opportunity to go to this really interesting gathering of um, people who are doing some heavy-duty work on healing the earth around the globe and from all different cultures and working like with the UN and stuff like that. And there was this one man there who has been taking elders around to all these sacred sites around the globe and doing these healing ceremonies with the earth. And I was just like, whoa, I had no idea that was happening, you know, (laughs) on any kind of um, like uh, official level. But I mean, they're really systematically going to these mapped out energetic places with tribal elders from around the globe and doing these ceremonies Mm -hmm. to heal the that vibration. And and so I'm going in a roundabout way (laughs) to get to this, but. And I, I was speaking with Ramdas earlier this year, and I was talking to him about this moment in time and how there seems to be more capacity for awakening, mm-hmm. but less structure to support it. So, yeah. and, and, um, and I, he said it much more eloquently than that, but it was basically that idea. And so, um, I guess I'm just curious on your perspective on that because yeah. you're you're kind of coming into that 
energetic field. You were supported. You were, you were born into this place where you could have, like you said, a temple for every <laughs> resource, for every spiritual <laughs> possibility right on your landscape right there. And then you can go to Naropa for a semester and access all these things. Naropa is a real thing that exists. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, but then there is this other level of disillusionment in the, in the energetic field or in the minds and hearts of, of a lot of people. Yeah. So that wasn't really a question, <laughs> but, <laughs> but what it is, is, you know, it is, um, part of what this podcast is for me and the the reason to allow this exploration of conversations with women and and with feminine wisdom is that I feel that allows for that kind of gray area allows for that webbing to be um, connecting like you were talking about all your disparate parts that you felt like you could finally integrate and it's okay to have this kind of webbing idea. And, and so I'm just curious about your reflection on that for this moment and for the moment of changing the earth, that moment of despair, yet creating something to support us all. Yeah. Uh, so there, there are two, I guess, different, um, like worldview frameworks, uh, that come to mind as a response to that. And the first, um, is the, is about the age of Aquarius, um, which like, I was just having this conversation yesterday with someone, um, where in the sixties people thought like, Oh, the age of Aquarius was like, it was going to be love and harmony and peace across the board for everyone. Um, which is always what people want, uh, but never what fully happens. Like evolution doesn't happen in a direction of perfect harmony, it's it's just dynamic systems always changing and engaging with each other. Um, but if like you look at the cosmological archetype of Aquarius, it's it's air, but it's the most complex and subtle uh, because it's the the last air sign of the zodiac, um, where it it's like literally when I think about Aquarius, I think about the atmosphere and it's so it's it's air it's complex and it's information and it's global and so all of those things together sound a lot like the internet to me (laughs) and even like when i think about the aquarian archetype i think of like bright white and blue light which is like what we have on our cell phones and our faces every day you know um so i feel like there are these um I guess both of my responses have to do with cycles, understanding time in a cyclical kind of spiraling way where it's not a circle, uh, but it is a cycle and it like kind of emerges in spirals that we can understand through deep time, through understanding deep time and really listening to our ancestors and also really listening to um, the future beings. That's one of the practices that Joanna Macy does is Mm. listening to our descendants, listening to the seventh generation beyond us Mm. and hearing what they would be saying about how we are living today. Um, so we're, we're at this precise time and I, I haven't studied this aspect of astrology all that much, but I do understand that people say that we're in the age of Aquarius. And I understand that like that's information and it's sharing, sharing our minds. And, um, 
literally having satellites to instantaneously connect us across the globe through the airwaves. It's amazing. I mean, we're doing that right now through Skype. It's phenomenal. Uh, so that's, that's one piece of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure anybody who's studied this more in depth would have much more to say about that. Um, and similarly, I, I'm not an expert on the Kala Chakra Tantra, but my academic advisor was. Uh, and the Kala Chakra Tantra is the Buddhist Tantra um, that that Shakyamuni Buddha taught um, that is a very esoteric, very complex text that has um, a lot of mystery around it. And it's pretty difficult to, to understand, but it's the Wheel of Time Tantra. And my academic advisor was John Newman, and I was really blessed to have him. Um, I, I was his last ever student before he retired, um, and he's one of the foremost Western scholars uh, who are who's an expert on the Kala Chakra Tantra. And what I've learned from him, and also from studying uh, Joanna Macy's um, analysis and commentary on the Shambhala prophecy, because the, the Shambhala prophecy is within the Kala Chakra Tantra. And the Kala Chakra Tantra is all kind of very prophetic, and it's all about time cycles. Um, but the Shambhala prophecy, a lot of people have identified that that we're living the Shambhala prophecy right now, which is um, that there will come a time when the danger to Buddha nature and um, enlightened ways of living and to life uh, will become so intense. The danger will become so incredibly powerful. Um, and so many people will have strayed and forgotten the true, the true nature of um, all of our inherent Buddha nature and have forgotten the Dharma and will have forgotten the Sangha and will have completely forsaken so much. And, you know, even though you and I are like immersed in, in satsang all the time, there are billions of people on this planet who are so lonely and so disconnected and so far removed from any sense of meaning or purpose or spiritual connection in their lives. Um, and in the in the prophecy, it's like everybody's going to be, you know, super diseased and uh, just deeply disconnected, like all, all these things, you know, like the four horsemen kind of stuff that I think anyone at any point in time can identify, like these things are at play always. Uh, so maybe it's an archetypal time thing that can be tapped into at any point, but within the prophecy, it says, you know, there will be the Shambhala warriors will emerge and they don't come from a specific place, but they come from a specific place of consciousness. And during this time of greatest discord, um, greatest suffering, it is the the time when we have strayed so far from our truth and have the most potent capacity and potential for spontaneous enlightenment, for like Vajrayana kind of awakening, where somebody like Milarepa, who was a mass murderer, can become fully enlightened within that same lifetime. Mm-hmm. Um, and that we live in this time of incredibly potent potential. Uh, and like you said, it's, it's like, there's not, there's not for many of us, there's not a solid foundation that we come in to, uh, because that's the nature of the time that we're in right now. It's shaky. And it feels like the rug is being pulled out from under our feet every time we, you know, pay attention to what's happening in our government, or pay attention to, you know, the incredible upheaval of our planetary systems. All these things are, like 
textbook examples of what it's like when systems change happens, when evolution is is occurring within a large complex system. Some things collapse and new, more healthy, more integral systems have to emerge to take their place. It's just the only way that that's possible. Mm-hmm. And I think what an important question that we need to ask ourselves is what kind of role do we see humanity having in a potential future? Because if you take a if you take a deep ecology, um, deep time look, like the planet's going to be probably fine, even if we do some of the worst case scenario things. There are forms of mycelium that will digest uh, nuclear <laughs> radiation. Like they're doing it, where where we can know, like, okay, there are forms of fungi that can thrive in the most most toxic, noxious environment. So like, life on this planet will continue to exist. We have gone through many massive ecological upsets that have killed over 99% of life on the planet. And here we are like in incredible abundance and diversity. I'm not so worried about the planet as I am concerned that people aren't always asking themselves, what role do I want to have in, in humanity's future on this planet? And how hospitable do I want this planet to be to my own species? Um, Right. And that's and that's again, back to your particular foundation, though, like you're saying, is that you are standing in a place to make that choice. Mm -hmm. And that and that and now that part of what you're saying and what I'm understanding what this guy was telling me about these ceremonies with the earth is like the, the actual earth vibration is low because of the deterioration of human consciousness. Yeah. And because of the effects of humanity, you know, just like too much human traffic in these wild places. Mm -hmm. And and so having having the the foundation to be able to make a choice about yeah. how how I want to be involved in that and i think that that's part of that despairing energy that we're we're talking about um in that that's out there right now is that people maybe aren't finding that solid ground to be on to be able to feel that they can make that choice and also what i like about what you how you're relating to it in in terms of time and that spiral and the possibility of it being a cycle um and so that gives that gives a little more space but it again maybe that's where the wildness is now (laughs) maybe you have to have it all documented but (laughs) the wildness is just in the energy of the time and that there's there isn't a whole lot of a lot of solid ground to to stand upon Mm -hmm. outside of the self and so that then that would make sense that there would be that would be the grist for the mill or the friction needed for the spontaneous (laughs) awakening of who whomever yeah well and i mean like the suffering is so intense and Mm. that i think correlates to the intensity of the longing Mm. that but see i'm so so irritated with this this 12 (laughs) this 12 step and the the 12 step idea of bottoming out i'm irritated Mm. with that and i'm irritated but you know, I'm irritated with the apocalypse. You know, the, there's an entire Christian movement, the Left Behind movement. There's a whole idea that that's what we're aiming for: is that <laughs> we're going to wipe off half, and and then these other this this group is going to get to ascend. And so, I'm 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 feeling personally like they're actually they really are just coexisting, and it is more of an internal choice of how you want to perceive where we actually are in time. 
Yeah, I agree with that completely. And I think um, for me, it's really helpful to use the Buddhist uh, cosmological framework of the realms, um, Mm. which I think a lot of people interpret them as, you know, oh, maybe as like, oh, there's an actual hell realm and there's an actual heaven realm, which maybe on if you're into like seeing things, you know, in different dimensions, maybe there are different dimensional realms. But what I'm able to see, uh, and I think everybody's, everyone I've ever talked to totally agrees with this, is that like, there are hell realms on this planet. And there are God realms on this planet. Mm -hmm. And the God realms are not realms of enlightened people. They're realms of people who've had uh, good enough karma to warrant a place where they don't have to be reminded of suffering and they can just spend eons in the, in the traditional understanding mm-hmm. is that you can spend eons in a God realm and everything's wonderful. There's music, there's beautiful food, there's beautiful people. The landscape is gorgeous. It's really nice. It's like, you know, all these beautiful destination vacation places mm-hmm. uh, for the for the ultra wealthy in in our world that I see those as God realms. Um, and it's really interesting because when your time is up in the God realm, when your karma has kind of all been used up because you haven't been dedicating it to anything other than your own pleasure, um, then you, you start to smell a little bad. That's smell is really important in Tibetan Buddhism. Um, and, uh, actually like the, in, when you say Tibetan Buddhist prayers, a lot of the time in English, you say, um, the word stainless, um, like it's so pure and clean, the stainless Dharma, the stainless, whatever. Uh, but actually the, the direct translation is, um, is that it has no smell, uh, like that no bad smell, mm. um, so the Tibetan is just like a very nasally oriented, you know, kind of a sen- sensory culture. And so in the God realms, you start to smell kind of sour mm. and everyone just shuns you and rejects you. Mm. And until you're all alone and then you drop and fall into maybe the demigod realm or maybe the human realm or maybe the animal realm, wherever it is that your karma brings you next. Um, and similarly, like in a, in the hell realms, um, I think that we can all imagine what the hell realms are on our planet right now. There are sweatshops there, the massive number of people who are in actual slavery, even though we don't call it that, in our world right now. There are people often very, you know, the, the incarceration population of America is massive. And a lot of those people are living in a hell realm. Um, but what's possible in a hell realm is also like consciousness is possible there. And the Buddha actually had this moment, the like one of the earliest moments of enlightenment, uh, of see- the seeds for enlightenment for the Buddha was many, many lifetimes before he was the prince. Um, he was just this wretch in a, in a really disgusting hell realm. I won't go into the description. It's horrific, <laughs> but he was doing this really disgusting, awful manual labor. And, and there was somebody who had connected karma to him that was next to him doing the same labor. And it was so horrific and so strenuous. And the Buddha looked over and he tried, he, he offered to take on that person's labor in addition to their, his own so that that person could rest for a moment. He had that moment of consciousness and awareness, despite all the suffering that he was in. And that compassion, um, the, the overseer of the prison uh, or of the, the hell realm looked at him and said something like, no one can escape their own karma. And he 
raised his whip and he went to hit the Buddha with the whip. And in that moment, the Buddha's consciousness completely flipped and he was transported into another realm. Um, Mm. And he didn't have to experience that pain because it came from, from bodhicitta, from the desire to serve others. Right. So, so like I relate to like, there Mm. are days when I'm in a Donald Trump America where I look around and everyone I'm encountering is so kind to one another and is so present and so loving and so compassionate. Mm. And it's not fake. It's so real. And I can say to myself with full honesty, wow, like world peace is really strong today. Like world (laughs) peace is here. It's happening. It's It's totally here. I'm in this realm where I am, I am a human and I, and that's the beauty of, of a human life. Um, it's not that the precious human life is um, all lives are precious because a lot of lives are not deemed precious by circumstance, by the people around them. A lot of lives are deeply devalued. Uh, and I think a lot of people struggle with this aspect of Buddhist philosophy of like, well, some people don't consider a human life precious. And some people are like, I'd much rather be my dog who doesn't have to worry about taxes. Um but but when you when you dive into the into the detailed study of this, a precious human life is a life in which you have exactly what you were saying about me, where you have the good fortune to have a stable a stable family, you have the good fortune to have access to the Dharma, you have relatively good health. I've had you know difficulties, like we all have difficulties, but it's not been disastrous. Um, you have uh, there's like I I think like eight you know. Tibetan Buddhism loves lists um, and there's a specific number of qualities that you contemplate your precious human life. And so it's, it doesn't apply to every human, um, but every human has the opportunity to create the conditions for more precious human lives. And I think regardless of our stories and regardless of the very real uh, instances of oppression that, that different people born into different bodies and different lives can experience, we all have the, ability to create in in our own unique way the conditions for more for more of that precious human life and we can and we can also like it's not I, I don't believe in like determinism at all I think that we have free will and I think that we have the ability to create peace on earth in every single moment in every single interaction that we have but it has to start within ourselves of course right right and so holding, you know, and, and being able to hold multiple realms at one time, really, mm-hmm. might be part of what we're talking about now. And with the picture of the spiral and, and being able to flow in and out of those different realms. And, and, um, you know, and so you, you know, you are going through this moment right now, this massive transitional moment that, that all of us go through at some point in our lives. Mm-hmm. And, um, I don't want to get too into it right now, but just curious about your reflection on that as a part of a, of a family unit mm-hmm. and, and, uh, you have a sister, right? Mm-hmm. So, and so, so the, the transition out of the male head of that, that unit, I'm curious about how that's resonating for you in, in, um, 
not just in basic gender, but mm-hmm. just in that, that role of the, the masculine presence. Yeah, this has been actually a really, um, thank you for asking that because this has been a really interesting topic. Um, not so much between my sister and I, but, but between my father and I, um, of my sister, my mother and, and myself, I've been spending the most time with him. Um, my, my parents divorced when I was like 13 and, uh, it was a a loving separation, but it, um, but there's definitely just boundaries and, and space between them. And my, my sister lives in Alaska, so she has not been able to be here all that much. Um, so, I have become really especially close with him in in the dying process and a lot a lot of our conversations about the pain and the wounding that we've both experienced um, in our family like every every family's fucked up and every family has resentments and suffering and patterns that cause pain uh, and so my father and I've been really we've really been trying to be proactive in unpacking and addressing those things so that we don't repeat this karma in future lives. And a big point of pain for him, and I feel comfortable talking about this because it'll actually be in the second edition of his book, um, which he's editing and putting together now, uh, that'll be published after he passes is, um, when he was really young, um, he was a boy and raised in post-war Germany and uh, boys have like, I mean, it sucks for girls, but it also really sucks for boys um, to be raised in this culture, in this world. And he was, he had, he had the shit beaten out of him, like all the time by other boys. He was really physically abused, really psychologically and emotionally abused by, um, by these other little German boys. And no one was helping him. No one was standing up for him. Everyone was just like, that's what it is to be a, to be a boy. And you just have to man up, you know? And, um, and there was one day he was walking home from school and there was a, a fence, uh, that, that had a hedge on the other side of it. So he, he couldn't see through it, but he could hear, um, a bunch of little girls around his age, he assumed, playing with each other in a really soft and sweet and gentle way um, that was really loving and um, talking to each other and playing and laughing and singing and not uh, not playing war, not embodying violence, not hurting one another. And he felt, you know, there was the hedge and the fence and then his own body as a boy where he was all these barriers that kept him from being able to access that. Um, he, and he, that created a story that at the time was, was real, but it was repeated throughout his life where he could not be allowed to be a participant in that kind of sweetness. Mm. And um, among women specifically. And it's so interesting because you know how, or I don't, I think that you understand this, but some of the listeners might not understand how Maharaji really uh, took the people, the Westerners who got to know him and took, it's like he twisted fate and he just like added some fairy dust and twisted their fate, but based off of seeds that were already inside of them, you know, didn't just like, like Larry Brilliant didn't just go off and do everything he's done. He was a doctor for it. Like he said, he made choices and he had stories about himself that created the the fertile ground 
uh, through which Maharaji could plant whatever seeds needed to be planted and for his own growth. And Raghu was in radio and Parvati uh, had studied like literature and, and book editing. And, um, you know, everybody had their own. And obviously Krishna Das was like in a rock band. Um, and two days ago, I was laying in bed next to my dad and I realized that I think that one of the biggest things that Maharaji did with him was give him my mom and my sister and I, and now his incredible wife, Durga, um, as these phenomenal examples of, of sweet, soft, feminine Hmm. love. We are women who love other women. We don't have this like competitive, um, aggressive edge. We have an amazing sense of sisterhood. When we first met Durga, we immediately felt like so connected with her as well. So there's not like a sense of discord or disconnection between the women in his life. Um, but it's so interesting because until very recently, until like just the last few months, he has never been able to fully receive or appreciate us. And we're like amazing people. My mom is one of the most phenomenal women in the world. My sister is so brilliant. Uh, Durga is like incredibly talented. And, um, you know, KK invited her to come and like study in depth with him. Like she's so gifted. Mm. And, And something about his story of masculinity kept his ego from just melting into the juicy feminine um, Shakti that that he's focused on his whole life. His whole spiritual practice is about the divine feminine. It's part it's about the mother. It's about all of these things. And he has lived it in such a beautiful way in ritual and ceremony and uh, writing a book about it and like all of this stuff. But, uh, but when it comes to the interpersonal thing, and I think also like he's an Aquarius astrologically, that's his sun sign. And I find that, um, that Aquarians who are somewhat masculine um, often have like a, a beautiful worldview and not necessarily uh, ease in applying it interpersonally. And and that was our experience with him. And it's been amazing this last month of his life. You know, he might he might be passing in the next few days, in the next few weeks. It, it could be a month or two. Um, he just kind of took a turn for, for the um, more withdrawn from the world. Uh, and I'm just so grateful that we've had this time of exploration and, um, you know, as he's dropping his body and this body that is tall and German and hairy and physically (laughs) imposing and has always dominated the space where whatever space he's in, not because he wants it to, but because it's so big, like his body is shrinking, you know, Mm. he's just limbs right now. And, um, and soon the body won't, exist except as ashes and when that happens he and I both have like we don't it's like a full understanding we fully understand this about each other that like I'll be able to feel him everywhere and it's not that I won't grieve I have grief every day but I without a body there's so much more depth of connection that's possible because the body holds so many stories about Mm. that keep us from receiving and keep us from receiving the divine love and the divine intelligence that's all around us. And my experience with death with 
I've had in the last seven years, somebody really important to me die every year of my life, uh, in the last seven years. And, and I've, it's allowed me to have this over time, this like really in-depth study of death. And I just think it's, the dying process is hard. It's often ugly. It's deeply uncomfortable for our egos. Um, but when death happens itself, if we're open to it and no judgment, if you're not open to it, but if you are open to it, there's like this incredible swirling of energy that happens this like vortex that Mm. of creation Mm. of like release and relief. And I feel it in like the plants around me. I feel it in the world around me. Um, like in a, in a pretty tangible way, uh, two years ago or uh, three or four years ago, actually, um, two students, uh, died on our, on our college campus of heroin overdoses. And it was so shocking and so difficult. We have a, it's a very psychedelic campus, but like, it was a huge surprise to any of us that that heroin was present on the campus. Now we understand that it's a global and especially national crisis. But when that happened, the the love that exuded from like the buildings and the pathways and the lampposts and and the individuals on the whole campus was unlike. I mean, it was the it was the most um, ecstatic. Uh, phenomenal transcendent experience that I've ever had in my life. And I was like raised doing weird, you know, religious <laughs> ceremonies, but like death is so potent and so much a part of life. Mm. And, um, it can be so beautiful and it has been so beautiful with my father. And I really hope that we can create a world in which, more people are comfortable with that possibility. And that be, you were speaking about receptivity and and that spiral and being able to have that depth of connection. And again, this is, you know, this goes back to the the whole theme of this this conversation is, you know, that each of those letting goes, those softenings, going on the other side of the hedge, you know. <laughs> whichever hedge it is, you know, that, that you're on, whatever side you're on and, um, being able to be vulnerable and, and offer that piece of yourself outside of the, the body in all of its trappings or outside of the presentation and being able to expose that aspect of yourself first to yourself and then, and then to others. Mm-hmm. And then from there, making your choice about how you want to perceive, you know, how you want to see which realm you want to see right now, which realm would you like to be, to be in? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I think a really important thing to add is to not use that as an excuse for spiritual bypassing, um, and not to get into a place of like, oh, I'm just going to be. I'm just going to be in, in like the happy realm all the time. Like I'm just going to be in the world peace all the time because it's, it's like we can, we can go there and we can abide there and we can try to make it bigger. Like we can try and make our, what we experience as world peace more inclusive. Like 
even, you know, like actual tangible actions, like, uh, having, you know, like the, the foundation has, um, you know, amazing scholarship opportunities for young people to be able to access this. That's making world peace bigger. That's making sure it's not just baby boomers who are able to come to the retreats because we in my generation can't afford things (laughs) like that most of the time. Um, so there's, there's a, like we can make world peace bigger, but then also we need to, we need to go into the places of hell realms or at least bear witness to them. Um, You know, just as I do, for some reason, I never understood this until this moment, but you can only spiritual bypass in the mind. I mean, yeah, if you're actually in your heart, you know, yeah, you, there's, there's no room for, for bypass, which is kind of a funny use of that word because that's where people have bypass surgery yeah, <laughs> literally oh have God. bypass surgery to go around the blockages in their mm-hmm. heart which you know it, it, as a as a seeker as someone who's on a path as someone who's whose intention is to be, become more present and to become more loving it really is that going into the heart the head to the heart as our teacher says over and over again and um you know, sometimes sitting in a seated practice or even a walking practice isn't isn't going to bring you back into the heart. But that ta- something tangible, you know, like that being with the earth or being mm-hmm. with another person, being in bed with your, yeah. you know, with your with your with your sick father, like yeah. being in that in that proximity. So uh, this is back to your kind of your the medicine that you're offering right now of this. Um, in the cloud and on the ground, you know, (laughs) sharing this, sharing your words, sharing from your heart into the, into the internet and then finding those actual expanding on those actual connections in the world, whether it's with a a person or with a plant or with a building on your campus that's, (laughs) you know, resonating in that moment. I just think it's so cool that um, our um, happy participant in the legacy of your family and and um, of your father's work and and um, and it's just such a radical um, time and a moment in my life that I've never had any intention for this to be a focal point of my existence. Mm-hmm. You know, always was spiritually inclined, always felt myself to be a being of light. You know, I was raised Christian, Lutheran, very conservative, and always connected through music and nature to something other, but never, um, never knew anyone who was their pursuit never never saw it as a as a lifestyle or any of that kind of stuff and so for me to be able to sit here and be in reflection to people across generations that are are truly devoted to this exploration is just so radical Mm -hmm. you know yeah it's so cool yeah and there's so many of us like it's amazing i mean it's uh, everywhere i go i know that it's not i i really want to make sure that i'm not i don't get into a place of thinking that 
Uh, I don't want to get into like an echo chamber of like, I'm only surrounded by people who think just like me, but I'm in such awe everywhere I go that I meet people my age who, whose whole lives are devoted to really living in the heart and really understanding the subtle, the subtle energies going on around like everything that's, that's the, that the planet is going through and that our species is going through. And um, the coolest thing is that people are embodying, um, embodying like a consciousness of, of more abundance that is taking away the scarcity that tells us that, uh, that life is a zero sum game that, you know, there are winners and losers. So, all right. So I ask everyone that I talk to, to give a specific piece of advice to women and girls on the spiritual path. Mm-hmm. We've, so um, I'll, I'll leave that for you. Mm. Um, I think that the best advice I could give anyone is to just find your own unique relationship with, with the elemental forces all around us, whether it's having a practice of going outside and gazing at the moon every day. Today we're recording on, on a new moon, um, which feels like a lot of empty, emptying's been happening. And I've, I've benefited greatly from a relationship with the moon that has helped me to understand the cycles of time and of my own body and my own consciousness. Um, or if it's, you know, going outside and touching the earth every day, uh, or if it's developing a sacred relationship with fire, um, intending fire and having whatever practice that is for you. Um, or also, I mean, I strongly always recommend, um, the practice of offering your, um, reproductive blood, your, your moon blood to the earth and putting that into the earth and developing a really, uh, in-depth sacred relationship between your body and the body of the planet. I think that beyond, any specific spiritual practice uh, from a different cultural tradition, um, which I'm like really thoroughly versed in, Mm -hmm. um, that's the most important thing to me is my own personal relationship with the tangible aspects of the world around us that, that, um, that are a reflection of our body. And in the, your last episode, I was just listening to it this morning with Lama Sultram. You know, she's saying how the, the, the treatment of the earth is always, always reflective of the treatment of women in a culture. And I think our ancestors, the, the, the women who have gone long before us are like asking us to not connect with any, any cultural trappings of anything, but just connect to the planet around us. That, that is our body. Well, Ganga, this has been wonderful. You've got a great mind and a a brilliant heart. And I'm so grateful that you took time to share it with me and everybody listening here. And, um, and just if you if you want to let us know, you know, for those that are listening that are a part of the Sangha or otherwise, what, um, how best to be in touch with you or how how they how you want people to connect with you? Yeah, well, um, because we started this way, I'm happy to uh, <laughs> give a shout out to my Instagram account, which yes. is uh, G-A-N-G-A underscore underscore D-E-V-I. Um, 
I didn't even know about the network until I met you in Ohio. Oh, really? Uh, oh, good. <laughs> yeah, and I was just like, oh, whoa, that's cool. And it's so amazing that you're doing this about women, that just about Shakti, because we're having these conversations. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. So we'll have all links to all that on the Shakti Hour page, and you guys can check it out there. And uh, thanks very much, Ganga. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to talk to you. From Ram Dass to Sharon Salzberg, Be Here Now Network is home to over 17 amazing podcasts. But we can't do it without your continued support. Donate at BeHereNowNetwork.com slash fundraiser to receive an exclusive gift and help us continue to deliver over five fresh podcasts each week.